With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back. This is the Bless You Boys podcast, episode four. Bless You Boys is the SB Nation site devoted to Tigers baseball. I'm your host, Brandon Day. I am a staff writer and editor at Bless You Boys. Um, we're going to do something a little different this week. Um, Ashley McLennan is off for the week, and we are going to take a two-week hiatus after tonight's podcast. Um, we'll be coming back to you um, at the beginning of the new year. Uh, January 2nd, we'll be recording the next episode. But tonight, we're going to do something a little different. Um, we've got a special guest in. Um, his name is David Lorela. Uh, David writes for Fangraphs. Um, he's he's pretty well known for his um, his interviews with players, managers, and front office types, general managers, and such. Um, he produces a lot of really interesting content over there. Um, talks to a lot of people around the league, and he is recently back from attending the winter meetings. So we're going to talk to him about that, and we're going to talk to him about the Detroit Tigers and the situation they're all currently facing right now. So without further ado, um, let me introduce David, and we'll get underway. Okay, we're back with Fangraphs' David Lorilla. Lorilla, I goofed it up already, David. <laughs> Easy to do. Um, David has been down at the uh, the winter meetings. Um, you'll find his writings at Fangraphs, as well as formerly of Baseball Prospectus back in the day. David, how are we doing tonight? I'm doing great, Brandon. I just uh, just opened a beer after dinner, and uh, you know, let's talk some baseball. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. So uh, I was gonna just kick right in since you're, um, you know, you're kind of a Red Sox guy. Um, you know, Eric Hosmer didn't get the big deal. Everybody thought he might in Boston. They went back to uh, back to the well with Mitch Moreland. How are you feeling about that? Um, well, I mean, I think that's a, a smart thing, money wise. Um, you know, as far as the Red Sox guy, you know, I live in Boston, but I'm actually from the UP. So in a lot of ways, I'm more of a Tigers guy. You know, back in the day, as you said. Yep. Um, no, it's it, it smart to not spend a ton of money on players whose contract demands are just, if that exceeds smart baseball. And, you know, the money that Hosmer is currently looking for is not worth it. Moreland is not making a lot of money. So, yeah, good, good move for the Red Sox. Yeah, I mean, do you think, I mean, obviously Eric Hosmer is not going to get $200 million or something like that, but do you think... Um, I mean, smart baseball is changing at the moment. You know, there was there was a time when there were there were a lot more you know kind of big spending teams running roughshod over the rest of them, um, and it seems like things have kind of been compressed over the past you know four or five years as teams get a little bit more thrifty, um, understand what they're doing. Did you kind of see that playing out when you were at the winter meetings? There weren't a whole lot of deals going down. The winter meetings, Brandon, were a little bit confusing because everybody assumed that after the Otani. And John Carlos Stanton deals got done beforehand that a lot was going to happen. And as writers, we spent a lot of time in the media workroom looking at each other, wondering, well, when is there going to be something happening? And it was very slow. And it's hard to say how much money really had to do with, with uh, the decisions as opposed to teams just not yet settling on what they wanted with the pieces falling in place. But, I mean, money is it's always a factor. You know, it's less of a factor with teams like the Dodgers, 
Yankees and Red Sox, certainly, than it is with a lot of other teams like, you know, the Twins, the Pirates, and so many others. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and, you know, it, is it, I mean, is it my, impre- my impression right that it, it seems like this has kind of been the way it's going where less deals get made at the winter meetings than maybe they're used to? It kind of feels like there's still sort of a kind of a folksy way of covering the winter meetings where, you know, you'd think all these deals are going down. Um, and yet it doesn't really seem to happen so much that way anymore. Is that just kind of, you know, kind of something that's kind of lost to the past at this point because everyone's just texting and sending each other information anyway? Well, there certainly have been fewer deals the last few years, but, you know, maybe it's just a cyclical thing like, you know, like baseball tends to be overall. Yeah. So it could be the start of a trend. You certainly have the, the youthful GMs in the modern world texting each other. Certainly, you know, the old... You know, meet face to face, shake the hand, maybe you know, dial a, a rotary phone. If anybody <laughs> is old enough to remember those things, um, you know, those days are of course past. Yep. So you don't. Yeah, you don't see uh, some GMs kind of wandering around with a team of interns taking notes and all that sort of thing anymore. <laughs> well, you don't tend to see GMs during the winter meetings at all because they're smart enough to hide in their suite, so they don't have to talk to. Uh, you know, to the hundreds of writers that are there and, uh, you know, thousands of fans who are just wandering around, uh, you know, ho- hoping to catch somebody. <laughs> yeah, just wandering the floor would probably be pretty dangerous for most of them, I'm, I'm sure. Catching Although it- you, do see pe- you do see people walking around. I know that there was a one stretch of maybe 30 or 40 feet in, in the lobby during one of the days where I think I passed uh, Bill James, Brad Osnes. Peter Gannon, Hawk Harrelson, and I'm forgetting who else. I was thinking there were five or six guys within like one minute, and I was thinking, this is really quite the place. Yeah, that's which is something. I mean, that's you know, I'm used to it. I'm, I'm there every year. Yeah. Some, sometimes you lose track of just how much of baseball it is on site. Yeah, and obviously, you know, you're working, so yeah, you've you've, you've kind of got your different perspective there. Do you think um, it's? I mean, it's possible that part of the free agent market right now, at least this this season, is just that there's there's kind of a lot of flawed players asking for a lot of money. You know, J.D. Martinez doesn't defend well. You Darvish just blew up in the World Series. Jake Arrieta has some concerns. So, do you think it's, it might just be kind of a one or two year thing? As far as the deals that players are going to get, basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, it depends a lot on the player. The, the the guys that you just named are going to get a lot of years because because teams can afford to pay them, and, and the demand will be there. If you're talking about guys like Mike Byers, who actually I think is a pretty nice pitcher, mm-hmm. um, you know, the shorter deal. And, and I and I am saying that sincerely. I think Byers is going to be a good, solid starter for for the Tigers this year. They, if, if he's as good as they hope he is, I, I assume they will flip them come trade deadline. But yeah. that's the type of move that the Tigers should be looking for. They should not be looking for marginal wins at this point. Yeah, yeah, trying to find bounce back candidates, and yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, putting him back with Chris Basio, um, you know, Houston kind of changed his mechanics and tried to kind of move him toward more of a, a two seam sinker kind of approach, and that doesn't doesn't seem like him. So I'm I'm real curious to see um, when they bring him back here, if uh, if they kind of try to kind of move back to more of like a four seam up top curveball. I mean, his curveball is his best pitch. He's got a pretty good changeup. So, yeah, I'll be interested to see if they uh, they try to kind of move him back toward his old mechanics a little bit more. Well, it's it's always, uh, you know, a project comes spring training for guys who aren't really locked in, into who they are. And, you know, is Basio the right guy for this? Um, I don't see why not. 
you know, he, he has a good track record as a pitching coach. Um, you know, is he a young, progressive pitching coach? You know, possibly not. I think he's a little more old school. Yeah. But that fits who the Tigers are right now. Compared to most teams, uh, if you look at their general manager, at their manager, and some of their coaches, they are very, very old school. And I guess if I was a Tigers fan, I would maybe be a little bit concerned with that because a lot of the young rebuilding teams in baseball the last few years have been very progressive. And we've seen where it's taken teams like the Astros. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, for a lot of us, um, you know, who, who pay attention to, you know, to metrics and to the way the more advanced teams are kind of working things, it just feels like, you know, we kind of got the leftovers of the, of the front office, you know, Dave Dombrowski was, was the, the big, the big dealer who, who kind of produced a lot of the team's biggest wins. And obviously they had, you know, there were, there were some systemic problems kind of through the farm system and development, but nothing, nothing life altering. But then you take away Dave Dombrowski and now we're left with what feels like kind of his, his, his staff, you know, holding it together. And I, I think a lot of people are very concerned about that actually. Well, I do know that there are some, some very bright people in the organization, in the analytics department. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jay, Jay was it Jay Sartori, I believe, Santori. Yeah. Sam Menzen, you know, extremely bright, bright guy. And there are a few others. But, you know, I, I was at the, uh, the GM meetings as well a few weeks before the winter meetings. And a lot of those guys were available. And Al was one of the people I, I spoke to. And it just struck me as, you know, not saying he's not a great, a good baseball man. He certainly is. Mm-hmm. But he's just very, very old school in the way that he talks about baseball. You know, he talks a lot about scouting. He, his questions that I gave him about um, analytics, he certainly understands the terminology. But the, maybe the depth, is, it is not the same as talking to you know, say Derek Falvey and Thad Levine in, in Minnesota. He just looks at the game a lot like Dombrowski did, which is really back. Uh, it, it's old school. Yeah. There's really no other way of putting it. Yeah. And, you know, that's it's just something that, you know, you see the way other teams kind of talk about integrating analytics into like all the way across, not just in terms of player acquisition player development, but in terms of actually like working with the, the major league players and trying to integrate technology, you know, we, there was a really, I mean, it was kind of a perfect antidote for the conversation where Justin Verlander gets traded to the Astros. You know, they're, they're talking to him about his spin rate a little bit in different ways than in angles and things like that in a way that he hadn't really heard much here. Some of that he'd probably piece together himself, of course, but then, you know, they, they put a high speed camera on his grip on his slider and he finds a little bit adjust of an adjustment through that and suddenly has a better handle on it and is able to use it kind of as more of a swing and miss pitch or kind of as the more kind of cutter style. And you just kind of wonder about the, it's the you know, it's the integration between coaching on um, the teaching methodology and the analytics and front office that I wonder if the Tigers, yeah, just, just are kind of, you know, going to continue to lag behind on. That's something that has definitely worried me. I was, I, I was pushing for Gabe Kapler, which I knew was never going to happen to be their manager, just because I wanted to see what would happen if Gabe Kapler took over the Tigers. It'd be fascinating. It definitely would have been fascinating, fascinating, Brandon. But another uh, part of the equation is that, that it has to start up on top. Yeah, you're talking about Verlander going to Houston. Well, he joined a, a pitching coach there in Brent Strom, who I don't know how old Brent is off the top of my head. He is certainly north of sixty. Mm-hmm. I, I do know that. 
but he is somebody who has learned along the way and really embraced analytics. And he works in an organization where he had to embrace them even more. Yeah. So a lot of times, I mean, a lot of times in, in life in general, you're not going to keep a job unless you're keeping up with what the people that you work for want. You can't afford to fall behind. Yep, that's definitely the case. Um, and, you know, we've kind of brought in some of the more old school, you know, coaching as well. Um, you know, Ron Gardenhire is, is definitely that. Um, and, you know, I think there is, you know, there's a decent argument that for working with younger players, um, you know, he, him and his staff may be a pretty good choice, at least in the short term. How did you feel about uh, Ron Gardenhire getting the job here? Were you surprised at all? Or did that kind of seem like the, the perfectly Tigers kind of thing to do? I think that maybe it is not ideal, but I don't think it was a bad move because the Tigers are not going to win for several years. Mm-hmm. So I think you need somebody who's going to be good working with young players. Whether you're better off to have uh, Garden Hire's touch as opposed to a young manager, I don't really know if there's a perfect answer. Yeah. But I do know looking at, at he and his staff, you know, you have Lloyd McClendon, another old school guy. Who, you know, he's been around, Basio, as, as we mentioned. And the rest of the staff really seems to be former Minnesota Twins. Yeah, you got Rick which, Anderson which really in the up. bullpen, yeah. Yeah, Joe Vavra, I believe. Yep. Steve Little, I think, is the bench coach. These are guys that Gardy knew well, and they're old-school baseball people. So the Tigers, try, we're, we're not exactly trying to be progressive and creative, you know, with their uh, coaching staff hires. Yeah, and you know, I... Um... You know, some of the deals that they've made and some of the, the moves like the Rule 5 pick, you know, it, it feels a little bit, and I just like your impressions about this, that they're not really, some of the, the deals that they've made kind of feel like they're going for sort of like filler pieces. Um, you know, not guys that really have a lot of upside, but guys who seem like they may be able to kind of come in and play a role. And to me, that seems a little bit, uh, you know, kind of off what I feel like they should be doing. And I wonder how, how your impressions of those deals were. The pick of like you know Victor Reyes and the, the guys acquired for Kinsler. Yeah, my understanding of Reyes is that he's more of a fourth outfielder type. You know, maybe not that different than saving a Mike Gerber to, to throw a name out there. Yeah. So yeah, that did that did surprise me a little. But um, you know, again, I'm not a scout. Sure. And while maybe I'm not sounding as positive as I should about guys like Alavila. Um, he has a scouting background. I'm not going to pretend I'm half as smart as he is when it comes to assessing talent. So maybe we are talking about a player, you know, who is going to be somebody. Yeah, there are definitely some, you know, some other, it's always hard to know for sure, you know, which prospect writers really, really know their stuff best. But there were definitely some people who, who at least liked Reyes. He just kind of feels like a bit of a tweener where he's, you kind of want him to play center field because he doesn't have any power, but there's not a real consensus that he can do so. So yeah, it feels feels like a fourth outfielder and you know Troy Montgomery who they got for for Kinsler from Los Angeles kind of feels feels like he fits a similar place and I kind of wondered if if they were if you know maybe there was they just really didn't have that many options but if they had paid Kinsler's salary if they had tried to kind of expand on the deal if they might not have pulled a little bit better prospect out of out of the Angels who do have you know four or five kind of average rated outfield prospects who we didn't get <laughs> Well, yeah, calls like that, that are difficult. Again, it goes to scouting. The Tigers have acquired a lot of players over the, the last the last season who don't really seem like, like great prospects. 
but that does not mean that that they, they're not going to be. Mm-hmm. You know, Candelario certainly had a, a good season when he came over. You know, Isaac Paredes is very young. These aren't you know, like gold star prospects, right. but they have a chance. They have a chance to be pretty good. Yeah. And the, and the guys they got in the, um, you know, the Verlander deal, I really liked quite a bit. So that was a pretty nice little haul there that kind of kind of bolstered the farm system, I thought, pretty substantially by getting a, a pretty good catching prospect as well as a really good arm in Perez, especially. Well, I think one thing that, that the Tigers do have going for them, and they're maybe not really different than the Cincinnati Reds in this respect, is that they have a lot of very good young arms in, in their system. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Reds may be a little farther advanced than, than the Tigers at this point. But if if some of these players, you know, the Matt Manning, uh, turn into what they could be, you know, this is a, a promising pitching staff. But again, we're talking about two, three, four years down the road. Actually, two would be maybe a little too ag- aggressive. Yeah, maybe in two years you see Perez and Burroughs like make their their first appearances, but yeah, but to wait for them to mature. Yeah. It's going to be a few years. Yeah. So the timetable still kind of, kind of feels like, you know, three, four years before you can really start pushing the tigers to make, make big moves, which is very frustrating. <laughs> I was joking today that we should, uh, we should trade for Christian Yelich while the Marlins are having their fire sale and then, then just sign Manny Machado next off season. But that's just cause I'm, I'm going stir crazy. <laughs> Uh, it would be pretty interesting to, to you know to see players like there you know like that in, in Detroit you know in all seriousness um, if if they're under control it's certainly not a, a bad move to get um, it, we're talking uh, you know uh, dealing you know Jose Iglesias everybody assumes will be dealt as well but uh, I believe he's arbitration with third year arb eligible this year yeah or after this year so I think he has two more years so. Uh, if we were to trade, we, the Tigers were to trade Iglesias, I, I don't think you want to do that unless you get value. Can't just keep giving away every piece that you have yeah. just for the sake of giving away pieces. You know, Iglesias is not a great baseball player, but um, he's a very good defender and he's a lot of fun to watch. And I think people need a reason to want to go to Comerica Park. Yeah, which is kind of a problem with the Ian Kinsler trade, I thought, in that I'm not sure it wouldn't have been more valuable to have Ian Kinsler on the team as someone to kind of rally around. But then again, the Tigers may have been, you know, may have it may have been just kind of a, almost a thank you for for your service. We're gonna let you, we're gonna let you walk in the off season and try to get you to a place you want to play because there isn't a whole lot we think we can do about you anyway. Well, there isn't a lot that, that the Tigers can do about about a lot of their players right now, and I have to believe that. Uh, like Nick Castellanos can't be especially happy right now with this situation. Mm-hmm. He is turning into what maybe Kristen Yelich is in, in Miami is one of the few, you know, impact potential impact players on the entire roster. Yeah. It actually kind of suggested uh, earlier this year that it was, it was maybe past time to start talking to Nick about an extension. And, you know, that's controversial because he doesn't really have a position yet. We don't know if he's going to play right field, whereas Yelich is, obviously a good defender, but Nick has already shown, I think a little more power and probably has a little bit more power potential. And we just don't have so many bats in the system that I feel like letting Nick kind of walk away. If you could get him on a reasonable extension with a lot of control would be worth it. But I could also see Nick Castellanos feeling like, no, I think it's, I think it's time I moved on. Well, I would think that right now he is the player that you build around on this team. You know, uh, you know, what else is there? Yeah, you know Michael Ful- Michael Fulmer, perhaps, 
a player that I'm interested to see how quickly they get him in, up to Detroit is Kristen Stewart. Yeah. As well, and uh, I don't have his numbers in front of me, but I'm assuming he must be 23 or 24 years old by now. So he's, you know, he's not like a 20, 21 year old kid that you're going to wait forever. Yeah. You know he was in double, he was in double A this year, but you may want to give him, you, you may want that jump and see what he can do at the big league level. And there probably will be some swing and miss at the big league level at first. But along with Castellanos, he's the guy who's going to hit, hit the ball out of the park. Yeah, I believe he hit 28, 28 home runs this year and uh, for Erie. So, yeah, I mean, the power is definitely there. And, yeah, he'll be 25 when the season starts. So he and um, he and Gerber are both kind of at that age where you can't, you know, you, you kind of take the risk of sort of over-ripening them if they don't, they don't get a shot reasonably soon. Right. Well, Gerber, I think that you have to see what you, what you have. And, but again, I think he fits into the, the tweener type of mold. You know, he's certainly not a power guy. He's not a speed guy. He's just a hitter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, is, is he a strong major league hitter? I, I don't think we know the answer to that. Yeah. You know, but then again, Mikey Machuk uh, sort of came out of nowhere. You know, former high-round draft pick who, you know, injury stalled him a bit. He finally got a chance to play, and it was I enjoyed watching him when I visited Detroit in August. He was one of the players I was looking forward to seeing at at Comerica. Yeah, he's a fun player to watch. He's you know he's a high energy guy and kind of kind of does a lot of things well. Um, you know, I still kind of look at the you know the walk, the really low walk rate and just kind of worry that he's going to be you know kind of a a wildly fluctuating guy from year to year depending on how many balls f- fall in for him. But you know we don't have a whole lot of other great options at this point, so we'll take what we can get. <laughs> Right. Well, some guys are just simply free swingers, and a lot of great hitters over the years have been been free swingers. So I don't think you can take a guy and say, "Well, the walk rate's not what we want. He's not a player." Yeah. Some 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 players uh, swing. You know, they swing to get on base. Yep. And some guys end up drawing walks by simply hitting for power, and yeah, eventually starting to get their walks that way. So kind of backing no, people off. Iglesias will never draw many walks because he's going to get attacked by pitchers. Yeah. And he you know, it's common sense. Yeah. And just kind of can't, you know, I mean, they can't throw it by him, but uh, it's just a matter of whether it falls in most of the time. Right. The pitchers can't throw it by him and he can't hit it out of the infield far, far too often. Yeah. That definitely seems to be the case. Yeah. I mean, you look down at the farm, you know, I really do like the pitching depth there. And I think like for me, the question that's, that's, kind of in the back of my mind because it's not going to come up for another year or two is that, you know, the Tigers, obviously they had Justin Verlander, you know, circa 2007, 2008, but it was really, you know, it was trading prospects that really for Miguel Cabrera that really um, kickstarted kind of a a really good almost decade of, of Tigers baseball. And you kind of have to wonder if, if that's more the way that they should go. You know, I can't really think of a recent team that really just sort of waited for all their prospects to sort of, you know, kind of blossom at the same time. I mean, even the Astros, you know, there was a couple. I mean, there was sort of that core of Correa, Springer, and Altuve that they had. But there was still a lot of kind of wheeling and dealing that went on to get them to that point. And obviously the Cubs, you know, are, are largely a, a team that was traded for apart from um, Chris Bryant, really, and Schwarber. Well, that's that, Brandon, is a part of, of smart winning baseball, is what you do is you get the young core and you have them start – start coming up and you don't really spend a lot of money around them so you have money to spend when you're you're ready to win 
So that is when you are going to start adding some free agents, making a deal or two to bring in an impact player that, that you can afford. Yeah. I do wonder, you know, with all the, you know, it just feels like, you know, any player over 30 at this point just isn't going to get the kind of deal that maybe they would have seen, you know, seven, eight years ago. Do you think there's any anything at the tail end of, of a player's career where there's a bit of an inefficiency at this point where you can kind of pick up some pretty solid veteran players like the Angels just picked up Kinsler? Um, that's not really something that concerns the Tigers at this point, but is that a trend you kind of think is, is coming to the fore a little bit at all? Well, I think what, what you're talking here is, is a, a finance situation. A team like the Red Sox uh, or maybe the Cubs acquired um, Johnny Lester. You mm-hmm. know, the Red Sox didn't want to pay him all the years after the age of 30, despite the fact that they really could have afforded to do so. And the Cubs are willing to maybe eat money toward the end. Yeah. You can afford to, you know, to pay a guy $20, 25000000 million in the last years of the contract, even though he's not really – producing a lot if you have the type of budget that these teams have and can afford to go over the, the luxury tax. Yeah. The Tigers, the Tigers, unfortunately, are going to have a lot of Miguel Cabrera for a few years where he probably is not productive. I think he has a, another year or two where he will be a good player left if his back is healthy. Mm-hmm. But the final years of that contract, it's just you can't expect he's going to be like a Pete Rose was in play into his mid forties. Yeah. Yeah. You might, you might get some decent average with less power and it might all kind of be Victor Martinez like, in that there's so little speed on the bases that it's as much a hindrance as a help. So yeah, it does feel like we're eventually going to get to that point. And Victor of course is, uh, you know, he's pretty much at the end of his career at this point. I know he's pushing 40 years old, although I do think they have, what is it, one year of, of contract left for Victor. Yeah, he'll be gone after next year with, I think, about $18, $18 million off the books. So the payroll, you know, at that point is going to be down pretty close to $120 million, um, which for the Illiches is, you know, very, very down, you know, pretty low payroll for them. It, do, it does feel like there's there's plenty of room there for it to bounce back as the uh, as the team turns around, but we just don't really have an idea of what Chris Illich is going to spend. Alavila keeps kind of saying that the payroll isn't the issue. It was more the luxury tax, but I think, um, you know, just looking at what they're doing, what's borne out is that they're, they're pretty content to let the payroll drop way down for a couple of years and then see what, see what happens at that point. I don't see them spending a lot of money to kind of pick guys up and flip them, you know, like kind of overspending for prospects. Do you, do you think they might try that at all? Or is that not really a tiger thing? Well, I think that they may, if you can pick somebody up that you, that you can flip, and yeah. you're fairly confident that you can do it. You definitely do it. But circling back to what I said earlier about about spending money, it doesn't make sense to get marginal wins to win 82 games instead of 80. Um, at, at expense at this point, you're better off to save the money, lose a lot of baseball games, and, and get high draft picks. Yeah, uh, it's, it's no fun for the fans, but it's the way that baseball is structured right now, it is, it is the smart way to go. Yeah. Yeah, and you could definitely see that kind of being the case, yeah, for, for a couple years at least. I do wonder, you know, they have TV deals coming up. You know, they, they've kind of built up like this, a pretty good fan base and a pretty good, um, you know, kind of like kind of aura a little bit around Tigers baseball that is basically kind of at an end. And I just wonder, you know, how they're going to how they're going to face the next couple of years where they might might really struggle and then also have to kind of turn around and start negotiating new media deals and kind of a. You know, obviously, like the TV deals that teams are getting are great, um, but there's also kind of the specter of, you know, whether or not streaming is going to start to cut into some of that. Um, it's kind of a weird time in, in the media as far as 
well, as far as everything, <laughs> but even for baseball, yeah, coming up here shortly. Well, I mean, the Tigers have the strong fan base. That, that's one thing they have going for them. There are markets in this country where baseball really is not as popular as the ownership would like to think. I think Detroit is in pretty uh, strong footing. Yeah. You know, they. I think that if they go more than three or four years with uh, a 90-100 loss team, it will start to wear on fans a little. But I don't think you're going to really ever lose that Tiger fan base. Yeah, and it kind of feels, you know, I've been down there quite a few times in the past year and a half, and it, it feels like, um, you know, kind of a lot of what people would expect would, would be kind of like the drain on the fan base has already sort of happened. I mean, they're, they're you know, the people who would maybe come down there for a lot more games are, are back down to coming, you know, once or twice a year. And I kind of wonder if maybe the correction on that front has already happened. I guess I guess we'll find that out this year because they're really going to test it um, with all the players that they moved and how many um, how many new faces are going to be out there. Well, fans are, are so much fickle, and baseball is expensive. It's no longer going to Tiger Stadium for $5, you know, for a halfway decent seat. Yeah. You know, those days are long gone, but, you know, Comerica it is a fairly nice park. The area is, is not bad. Yeah, it's come a so, long way. Yeah, again, it's come a long way. And uh, I, there were pretty good crowds there. The two games that I went to in August, you know, it was a beautiful weekend. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm, I mean, I'm not totally opposed cause I was picking up, you know, seats behind home plate for $15, you know, a day or two before the game and, you know, getting to watch some of the pitchers I like best. And I'm kind of a pitching focused baseball fan. Yeah. Just sitting behind home plate, you know, for pretty cheap tickets isn't, isn't so bad for a couple of years. We can kind of sweat it out. I think. No, I did see Verlander's uh, start there. That there was a lot of speculation it would be his last start. America, I believe it ended up being his penultimate start. And he was brilliant that day. The fans, you could tell, were really appreciating what they were seeing, knowing that he would not be there for, for much longer. Yeah. I've never had an easier time, um, you know, switching, you know, switching over to another team and rooting for him than I did for the Astros this year. I mean, it just it just felt like perfectly natural. I haven't had that much fun rooting for a team in a couple of years, actually. Um, it was it was it was quite a thing to watch Verlander go go over there and kind of just kick it into about as high a gear as I've ever seen him in. Um, you know, and he threw harder in his, in what would people would think of as his prime, but he really feels like he's, he's having a, a pretty strong second prime here. Um, and, and it might go on for another year or two. He, his arm looks, looks fantastic. I, I, I know Tiger fans will remember quite well that a few years ago, it looked like he was on his way out. You know, the arm strength was not really there. Yeah. And, and, that actually uh, is when he started to look at analytics. I spoke to him about that this fall, and he said that while there have been real differences with Brent Strom in Houston, is that he did go from uh, avoiding analytics, starting to look into them more when he was not throwing as hard a few years ago. He realized that if he did not make adjustments, he would never be successful again. And he got the best of both worlds. He learned a lot, and... He got the Armstrong back. Yeah, as it turned out, um, you know, the the core surgery and, and you know probably coming back for it um, from it too soon re- really did seem to be the thing because he came out next the next season and promptly you know had the lat issue. But you know by the by late 2015, you know he was hitting 96, 97 with just a ton of life again. It wasn't it um, Brad Osmus actually who kind of I, I remember reading this somewhere that he kind of got on Verlander's case in 2014 about you know he, you're not preparing the way that the way that you need to 
Um, you're still trying to rely on the arm and you don't have it right now. And it was a bit of a scrum about that. And then Verlander kind of thought about it and accepted it and took all that under, under advisement. And here we go. Yeah. Not working in the Detroit market. That's something that, that I was unaware of, but I could certainly see Osmus taking that, that approach with them. It's been interesting, you know, you know, Brad Osmus obviously, um, you know, just gets tons of flack, you know, around here. And, you know, I mean, there, there's a reason for it. I mean, when you look at the talent that's been on the Tigers the past couple of years, they, I think it's fair to say that even if they weren't really a, a serious contender, that they underperformed. Um, what, what were your kind of impressions of the, the Osmus tenure? Because, you know, ever since he left, I kind of continued to hear a little bit more and more about you know, what the work he had done, you know, kind of with the Padres and, and, and stuff before. And we didn't hear that much about that, you know, during Osmus tenure, he kind of downplayed analytics. Um, he downplayed, you know, using technology a little bit, you know, not, not disparaging it, but just didn't really give you the impression of a guy who was, who was all in on that stuff. That is something that I always found very interesting because Osmus obviously has the front office background. Um, he has a good education, and he is very smart. I have had a, a limited number of conversations with him, and it always struck me that he knows a lot more than he likes to share with the media mm-hmm. about particular things. So um, I think people who think that Osmus is old school, I might, I think might be partially right in that I think that he tended to lean toward his gut a little bit more than some, you know, quote-unquote, new-age managers, mm-hmm. but it was not for lack of information and knowledge. Yeah. I, I don't think he was, he was making decisions out of ignorance of statistical probability so much as he felt like going in certain ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. And that's, you know, and that's built on, you know, 15, 20 years as a catcher in the major leagues and, and the experience and kind of the feel you get for the game. I mean, you can't, obviously you can't ignore that part either, but it always kind of felt to me like, like perhaps Brad Osmus wanted to downplay that because he didn't want to come off sort of as, as overly superior or, you know, that he was, that he was kind of a, a math guy. <laughs> like he just didn't want to, didn't want to get pigeonholed that way somehow. He did not want to be seen as a nerd basically. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of felt that way. Right. Well, I, I think that the one thing, Austin, I would defend him on especially, too, is the fact that he got a lot of criticism for how long he left the starters in and his bullpen not being effective. But when you look at the bullpen that he had been given uh, in his tenure, he really didn't have a lot of options. I'm, I'm fairly confident in saying that the Tigers would have won, won a World Series and maybe two over the last decade had Dave Dombrowski been able to come up with a strong closer and a, and a supporting staff for him in the pen. Yeah. I mean, if, if he'd simply prioritized it, I mean, it, it really always felt like he just kind of figured he could, as long as he had two solid back end guys, if the starting pitching was good enough, you know, we'd get there. And then you kind of look back and, you know, Rick Porcello is not a great pitcher. He did win the Cy Young last year, but you know, I think he he threw you know something like five innings, you know, over four consecutive postseasons. Um, you know, the way the way things look, you know, looking at the past couple World Series, you don't really see that as bringing your best arms to bear. You know, when the when the money's on the table. Well, I think the Tigers have also had some bad luck with with health with uh, with the bullpen and closers. Um, Dombrowski did acquire some some pitchers 
and rely on a few pitchers who just simply didn't work out for health or unexpected, unexpectable, what's easy for me to say, <laughs> uh, a flameout that couldn't have really been, been predicted. You know, Joe Nathan arm problem, of course, was... Yeah. You really can't predict that. He was not. He was no longer a young pitcher, but he went from a guy saving 35 games to, you know, to having Tommy John. Yeah, and basically, yeah, taking a year of being being really bad. Although, I mean, you also have to. I mean, maybe to me, the the real, the the worst and most egregious thing that the Tigers did during the Brad Ausmus tenure is, you know, obviously, like you say, the Joe Nathan thing, you know, probably was unforeseeable. But then he had, you know, Jabba Chamberlain technically as his setup man. And they're just, you know, to put a rookie manager in a situation where his most scrutinized moves are going to come in the weakest, you know, and, and, and least deep, you know, portion of his roster is just, is just hard medicine. Um, that's a, you know, it's a tough introduction for a manager, especially when you've got the, um, you know, the frontline starting pitching arms that, that he, that he had to work with. No, of course. Um, you know, Phil Coke was the best reliever for a while as well. Yeah, Al Albuquerque and, and, had a, had his brief run where he was maybe the best reliever. Yeah, and a, and a Phil Coke tidbit here that that I w- that I want to share too because I think a lot of listeners here to the podcast won't be, won't be familiar with it. When they beat the Yankees in the what it would have been the ALCS, when Coke struck out Raul Abanez to, to save it was Game Three, maybe. Yeah, the glove slam trying to go back into my memory is that data showed that the slider that Coke uh, struck out of Banya's on had more movement than any slider that he threw in the entire season. Wow. You know, we did have the data for that, and the movement of that pitch was, it was just incredible. He was definitely a guy you could see riding the adrenaline. You know, he was, he was a fun character, for sure. I think everybody you know, pretty much came away liking Phil Coke, even, even when it got to the point where we wanted him gone. Let's see. Are you there? I think I lost you. Oh, nope. There we go. We're good. You are there. <laughs> I am back. You are back. We are both back. We are you know, here. Phil Coke, Phil Coke was, was truly a character. He's, uh, I probably enjoyed speaking to him as much as, as any reliever ever. Yeah, his um, you know, and his Miguel Cabrera impersonations are, are still legendary. They still get passed around. <laughs> and he probably would be willing to come back and pitch if the Tigers wanted to give him an opportunity. Oh, yeah. I see uh, Jake Peavy wants to come back and pitch as well. Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I, I know of a team that has some uh, openings in starting rotation. <laughs> yeah, isn't that the advantage of being this bad is that, you know, you can take some chances. <laughs> right, and I think, though, no, in all seriousness, what the Tigers need to do with uh, the rotation, with many uh, spots in the starting lineup, you know, play the kids maybe a little earlier than you might and, and see what they can do. I, I'm not a believer that you really ruin players by bringing them up a little bit too early, Yeah, especially if there's not an expectation to win. Yeah, I mean, you look at kind of, I mean, the Tigers don't have so many examples of position players who came right up from double A, but, you know, Eugenio Suarez, um, Devin Travis has been felled by injury left and right, but both of them uh, seem to have pretty, you know, pretty good success coming straight up and, and being thrown into the fire. Um, you know, sometimes I think, you know, it's almost better for you to not sort of have that long buildup. Like you just get, you just get tossed in. Everyone's telling you, you know, just do, do what you're capable of. Don't overdo it. Don't expect to, you know, be the hero. And I, I could see that as, you know, kind of a, kind of a decent way to introduce a player. 
Well, I believe that the Tigers once had a young double play duo in the 1970s <laughs> at a very young age, and they played for uh, for more than a few years. Yep, yep, they did all right. One of them finally, uh, finally got the call last week, which was pretty great. How did you uh, feel about Mr. Trammell finally getting into the hall? Um, I thought it was, was fantastic. Uh, I was there for the press conference, of course. Um, Whitaker should have been there with him, of course. Yep. And, um, you know, let's get back to, to Whitaker in a moment. But uh, probably my biggest memory of the winter meetings this year was uh, tough man Jack Morris. Down <laughs> crying multiple times in the press conference. It's just something you would not expect to see. Yeah. Yeah, this is the man who, you know, berated Jennifer Fry and caused a huge firestorm and was notorious for yelling and screaming at every reporter who crossed his path. And, um, you know, someone told me, a twi- one of our twins uh, people over at, at Twinkie Town <laughs> told me that Harmon Killebrew had really had a huge kind of impression on, on Jack Morris and kind of kind of changed the way he thought about himself and his need to kind of be this sort of hard ass with this, you know, kind of aggro shell all the time. And um, he really has, uh, he really has changed. He's sort he's not recognizable as the kind of psycho that I, you know, kind of worshiped as a 10 year old boy wanting to pitch, <laughs> wanting to pitch while watching the Tigers win the world series. Well, I crossed paths with, with Morris in in press boxes and uh, dugouts once in a while. And I don't, really speak to him much, but he is still a bit of a, a curmudgeon. <laughs> but as, as we learned just last week, he's a, a curmudgeon with a real soft spot. Yeah. It, it was nice to see the, it was the human, human side. But but real quick on Whitaker, because I, I, we're probably running short on time here. Oh, we're okay. Is, Go ahead. <laughs> is the, the, the Hall of Fame aside, because that's a whole different animal, um, I believe that the Tigers have announced that they're going to retire Trammell's number this summer. Yeah. And they, and they are not uh, retiring Whitaker's number. Yep, that's what I've and heard. The, and, the, and the idea that they would not retire them together, to me, is the epitome of absurd. Yeah. I'm with you. The, uh, I, there are a lot of people listening to, you know, the older, somewhat older listeners to the podcast I think we'll we'll understand when I say that they weren't they almost were two individuals when they were they played together. It was always Trammell and Whitaker, Whitaker and Trammell. Yeah, is is they were they were a duo, you know they and they had equally good careers. So um, I don't think that the powers that be who with the Tigers care what I think, but I think they're crazy not to honor them on the same day. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, that was actually something we talked about last week on the podcast was that, you know, I mean, these things can get overblown, but it's always, you know, there's always been kind of an impression that the the Illich ownership hasn't hasn't sort of honored the the Monaghan Tigers, especially the 84 team to the degree that, that some would like or, you know, even especially when the Tigers were really bad and they didn't, you know, there wasn't a whole lot else to do but to go down there <laughs> and maybe for like, you know, to Sparky Anderson night and these kinds of things. Um, they never really took advantage of that. And here they are with the opportunity to, you know, to honor Lou Whitaker, who's, you know, pretty obviously a top 10 second baseman all time. I think if you, if you break it all down, um, you know, it should, should be in the hall of fame. And I really don't understand. I mean, I can understand him not getting in, but I mean, it almost seemed like he was dismissed out of hand, you know, from the moment he retired, which um, I've always kind of found baffling. And, you know, someday there's gotta be a statue of, um, you know, Trammell, underhand flipping the ball to Lou at second base. I mean, that's got to be the statue out there. So it would really make a lot of sense if the Tigers kind of woke up here and recognize that, you know, it may be that Lou Whitaker isn't going to get honored by the league until, or by the baseball writers until, 
you know, until the team does it themselves. And, um, you know, he just doesn't seem to command that respect. And I don't, I don't really know why I was young, you know, I was 10 to, you know, 10 and 84. Um, I mean, he always seemed like a quiet guy, but it almost seemed like he's, you know, he, he was disliked or, or something, or, or there was something fundamental about, you know, him that, you know, sports writers just never bought into. Um, and I've never, never understood it. And, and this is something where I think that the writers and the hall of fame are a very separate thing than the Detroit Tigers, mm-hmm. um, own hall of fame, um, and, and, and statues is you're honoring your own in, in Detroit. You're not really concerned with, the national, in my mind, I know that the Red Sox for a while had a standing policy about retiring numbers that you had to be a lifelong member of the Red Sox and you had to be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And I always thought there was a little bit of a certainty to that because that meant that a few great Red Sox players did not get their numbers, and then it's still the case, and have not had their numbers retired because they didn't meet this very narrow criteria which to me has very little to do with your own organization. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's just a little bit, little bit too intense. I mean, sometimes I think we're a little bit too precious about the hall of fame as well. Um, but especially when it's your own guys, I mean, yeah. What's to be lost by, by giving them the proper respect they're due, you know? Exactly. All right. Well, we've talked um, a good bit about the Tigers and stuff. I, the last thing I wanted to do is kind of hit on um, the article you just published about um, kind of managers, interviewing managers about um, today's players and um, and kind of whether or not they might be smarter or, or better educated on through the metrics on, on performance today. And um, did, you, did anyone kind of surprise you with their uh, with their comments on that? You interviewed quite a few major league managers here. I don't know if surprise is really the word. Um, I ended up speaking to nine. Um, Ron Gardenhire was not not one of them. Um, I will say that uh, Rick Renteria uh, of the White Sox had probably the most conservative, old-school answer saying that he doesn't believe that's the case. Um, and sort of a, a side to you know your, the individual question here is, the, the AL Central, to me, is the conservative faction of, of big league managers. If you look at across the board, um, you know, the five managers, I think what you have is, is old school. I think Paul Molitor might be the most progressive mm-hmm. you know, of the bunch. Yeah, and maybe, you know, Terry Francona has at least shown himself open to, to, to being at least a little more experimental than maybe I would have I would have expected from his Boston days. That would probably be fair. I would say Molitor and Francona together, and then you have Gardy, Renteria, and, and Ned Yost. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but but back but back to your your uh, you know the subject at hand though. Uh, I don't think there is by any means a right answer to the question I asked, and I was actually very impressed with the answers I got, given how you're not expecting that type of question. Yeah. You know, which was basically, is the modern-day player, does the modern-day player understand baseball better than players of previous generations? Um, uh, somebody who works in baseball that I actually spoke to that I was not included in that because we were speaking informally and, he, and he's not a manager, mm. actually did say that he does not think that they are in the least. And this is a person who is very much into analytics. He said that, some players now uh, speak the analytic game and think that way to the extent that they actually lose 
a lot of like pure baseball instinct, knowing how to play the game on the field, hmm. which I thought was an interesting take from somebody who's heavy into analytics. But there is no doubt that players walk onto the mound or in the batter's box knowing so much more about their own game and what the you know their opponents are going to do. Yeah, and obviously there's there's plenty of opportunity for for paralysis when you when you have that much data going through your head. I mean, you kind of listen to Miguel Cabrera talk about hitting to put it in a Tigers context versus JD Martinez talking about hitting and it's, you know, it's two guys who can do very similar things, obviously Miguel being the better of the two, but Miguel's the field player. Um he understands what's going on very well, but he's not necessarily going to articulate it in in, in the way that, you know, someone like J.D. Martinez might talk about his launch angle or what he's looking for from the pitchers and such. Well, once you're actually in the batter's box, all you're doing is reacting. Mm-hmm. I think that is where you really need to shut your mind off. But how you're going to tailor your swing is, is something that uh, data helps you. It does help you do that. But you could also argue that a lot of the launch angle information that's out there is exactly what Ted Williams was, was preaching. Yep. Drive it in the air. In, in, in 1960. Yeah. Yep. Drive the ball in the air. And, and these, you know, I see the same thing, actually. I'm, I'm a golfer and I've always kind of paid attention to golf instruction. I used to teach um, when I was younger and you see the same kind of, the same kind of cyclical trends where, you know, some of the time it's just explaining it in, in different terminology. Um, you know, someone kind of comes up with a new sort of, you know, paradigm in terms of just how they're explaining it, not so much what's actually happening. And I, I do wonder if that's what's going on now. And I also wonder if there's so much information out there that there aren't more opportunities kind of in the postseason for team teams who can who are able to flip the script to really just completely blow another team's game plan out of the water. Um, you know, a team that's maybe too beholden to to trusting the numbers in, in, you know, in kind of intense spots in the postseason. Well, I think we've seen in the postseason the last few years, um, the strategy is not dissimilar to that, you know, with the, some of the heavy curveball usage. Yeah. Um, and even what the, the Astros were doing this year to the Dodgers, the specific hitters is not really, the, their sequencing wasn't really predicated by setting people up as just pounding weaknesses. Yeah. And and an, another thing too that's important is is some players can't just automatically uh, change to whatever mm-hmm. you know you're supposed to change to. You know, you look at uh, a guy like uh, uh, DJ LeMay who in, in Colorado, who actually I believe is a Michigan native. Think, um, yeah. His 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 stroke is conducive to hitting the ball to right center and, and not for power. Um, if he tried to change that, chances are he would not not be hitting 320 every year yeah and a, a guy who's 320 of course being batting average everybody can sure. say hey he just fighted batting average <laughs> this fan graphs guy is talking batting angry yeah yeah but you're still doing something right if you're hitting you're hitting 320 assuming that your on base percentage of course isn't you know 330 <laughs> right yeah batting average is still i mean it just is it's still just a useful shorthand if you want to communicate across the uh the generations of baseball but yeah, you know, I've I, long been of, I, have been, I have long been of the opinion that no stat is, is without value if you use it in the right context. Yeah, much the same way that no stat is perfect if you manage to try to take it out of context. Yep, I think that's a very good way to yeah, very good way to phrase it. 
because you think like, I wonder if that's, I just wonder if there's some, some intrinsic value to a player that is better at changing his approach. Like the guy who's a good two strike hitter who can suddenly just kind of settle down and slap one to right field um, where you wouldn't see him doing that in the season. I, I do wonder if, um, if, if players that are more versatile in terms of being able to, you know, kind of handle a high fastball rather than being like a sinker only type guy um, are, are, are going to have a little bit of an edge at some point, just because there's so much data out there that I could see, I could see pitchers almost, and catchers almost getting, you know, paralyzed by their, their preparation um, in, in how they're going to attack players. Well, I think that information and preparation will let you know which hitters are going to be able to handle different pitches in different counts. Mm, yeah, well, that's a good point. Yep, the smarter guys will be able to adjust faster than the other guys. Right, and a, and a good catcher like a Brad Osman is going to understand. He's going to be able to read the hitters and understand that. And hopefully, you know, James McCann will be able to do that for for the Tigers as he matures. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely been an ongoing criticism of James McCann. You know, I um, you know, I actually felt pretty good looking at looking at his kind of contact profile and everything that he would have a pretty good year at the plate. But the framing numbers continue to come in, come in pretty weakly. Do you think that's something the Tigers need to address? Do you think they tried to address that to some degree with Derek Norris trying to give an option that's maybe a little bit more experienced behind the plate, a little more of a smooth handler? Because right now they've got to try to get everything they can out of their young, their young arms and, and try to get guys like Daniel Norris and Matt Boyd to be as valuable as they possibly can. Um, that's always the goal, but especially right now. Well, I think you need to get as much as they can out of McCann, who is still a relatively young catcher. And McCann has certainly worked hard on his, on his framing. Uh, you know, the numbers don't really back back up that, that work, but I also am not of the opinion that framing numbers uh, are completely trustworthy. We've seen enough variance year to year from mm-hmm. individual catchers that I'm not sold on them being deadly accurate. Yeah. Yeah, me neither. And I and it also feels like, you know, I, I, there have been a few articles written by guys at Fangraphs on this and other places about the, just the fact that teams are, you know, they've recognized framing so much that the, you know, the gap between first and last has just has collapsed to a, an extent where you're not really getting the, the monster value out of it that maybe you would have been four or five years ago by recognizing it early. And I, that's something else that people need to look at, too, is, is the narrowness of gaps. If you look at fan graphs and go down the leaderboard, player-wise or team-wise, in any one of a lot of statistical categories, you may just go down and see, oh, the Tigers are like 20th of the 30 teams in, say, like I'll pull a number out of the hat, on base percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, and you may see that, well, sure, but if, they're, if they were two percentage points higher, they would be 10th. Right. You know, there really isn't that much of a difference in a lot of these these categories yeah and it, it can definitely be oversold if you're kind of taking the simple look and just kind of going this guy is you know 115th and this guy is 30th but they're only separated like in framing by you know six runs five runs or something like that in a season so it all has to be taken with that context and perspective like anything yeah yeah so i think we've taken a lot of things in context here i think we're up to about an hour of conversation of uh of boring listening <laughs> yeah well i think we might be doing better at entertaining them than the tigers will do this year but we'll just have to see how it goes <laughs> possibly and just as importantly brandon the uh 
the can of beer that I was drinking during our conversation is now empty. So that that might be telling us something. Yep, uh, yep, that's the clock chiming at midnight. What uh, what beer was this? What brand and what model? Uh, something that is atypical for me. It was a uh, left hand milk stout. Oh. Oh, that sounds Which good. Which is a fine beer, not not my go-to, but it happened to be in the refrigerator. So it was there. There you, there you go. It was close at hand. Well, all right. For the record, I had a Petoskey Brewing Mind's Eye IPA, which was delicious, actually. You will have to try one the next time that I'm in Michigan. It's quite good. You just get just buried by Eno Saris and beer recommendations, or is that not a problem? Uh, Eno Saris, I think, does know a little bit more about beer than I do, and possibly more about pitch grips. But um, the, the gap may not be quite as large as uh, some people may think. Mm, interesting. Start circling back to my just reading down uh, leaderboards <laughs> comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I do look forward to that pitch grips book one day. David, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast, Tom. It's been great to talk to you. I've admired your work for years, so it's really really cool to have the opportunity to talk to you about the tigers and everything else fantastic thanks brandon yep have a good night